Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind boggling. We can't just believe that it was. Back on Conspira Normal, and we are back in Studio B. Studio B, <laughs> which is slowly becoming Studio A because you've got like a bunch of Rob stuff in here that you just bought from him. It was a fire sale for him to get that new bass he wanted. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. You you, you paid some good money for it, so yeah, we're, we're slowly moving it over here. Yeah, Studio B, we're in a we're in a buried storage container converted into a studio and then on top of that is like a, a Quonset hut and it's got all kinds of foliage and uh, camouflage deep in the, the, the mountains <laughs> <laughs> that's my dream are we only yeah we're gonna only broadcast on short wave yeah we've got a short wave antenna that's, that's bigger than regulations allow so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well folks we have tonight one of our favorite guests on the show. Uh, he's been on the show, I think, now about maybe 900 times. And that's Mr. Peter Robbins. Peter, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you. Good to be back on, Adam. Thank you, sir. Thank you for coming back on. Um, it's been it's been a little bit, I think, um, that yeah. since I had you on last. Um, I think you were the last time you were on was like 200.5 episodes. So that's been... Roughly almost about 10 months, I think. Mm, so so it yeah. has been a little while. Um, <laughs> just uh, how are things How are things going up there for you, uh, for the audience? Um, pretty well, all things considered. And um, by up here, you mean, of course, uh, the area of beautiful central New York State where you visited and um, New York City, about 200 miles to my southeast where i was uh, most of last week and continue to bounce back and forth between the two as uh, things permit excellent 
Excellent. Yeah, I, I I was thinking about it the other because two weeks ago was two years since I uh, hung out with you up there in New York City. Oh my gosh! Yeah. has it been that long? Wow. Yeah, yeah it's been we a while. We packed a lot into a short time. Yeah, we did. We really did. We went like you took us all around. Myself and my friend Harden. You took us all around like Lower Manhattan. And I, I think it would have taken, like, if, if you were to cover everything in New York, you'd probably have to take, what, like a year? <laughs> I'm still working on it. And, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think as a long life, every day, fully dedicated, yeah. <laughs> it's a and fascinating you, city. And you're only from there. You're only born there and raised there. And <laughs> yep. Most of my life. And still haven't seen yeah. all of it. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about a subject tonight, um, something that you've been working on um, lately. And this is kind of, um, I hesitate to say obscure figure of history, but someone that not a lot of people know a lot about. And that is the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Yeah. And how did you become interested in, in the subject of Forrestal? I know that there's a lot of... There's a lot of mystery surrounding his death, and we're going to kind of, kind of get into that. But how did you get into this whole subject? Well, um, I, I have been um, continuing to research and develop uh, talks and paper and a possible play uh, on Mr. Forrestal the past year or so. But um, he is a figure in American history who has fascinated me uh, for decades I became interested in him in the summer of 1987. Um, that was a fairly exciting time to be involved in UFO studies. It was the uh, 40th anniversary of Roswell and the whole modern age of UFO sightings. Um, I think for me, I, I haven't been to more than a large handful of MUFON symposia, but the most exciting and memorable one I ever went to was that summer that was held at Washington um, uh, American University in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the papers um, that was given there uh, was one that really made me uh, realize I wanted to get seriously involved in investigative research, and that was by uh, Stanton T. Friedman, uh, a now-retired uh, ufologist and nuclear physicist, and it was on the secret the secret life of a man named Donald Menzel, who um, was best known as being the head of astronomy studies at Harvard, but also had a secret life in the American uh, intelligence community. And Stan backed it up with extraordinary uh, variety of of evidence and proof. And it was also the summer that the whole MJ-12 controversy broke, and that the initial eight-page Eisenhower briefing document, which will be familiar to some of your listeners, uh, became public. And attached to that was a one-page letter, uh, which um, many of us feel, uh, upon intensive investigation and study, was indeed written by Harry Truman to this man, uh, James Forrestal, who would go on to uh, be our first Secretary of Defense. And Forrestal was named as one of 12 individuals in a, a working above top secret study group uh, pulled together very shortly after uh, the initial UFO sightings in Washington State, summer of 47. 
and uh, probably in action up and running uh, when Roswell, uh, something crashed outside of that town in New Mexico a week and a half afterwards. And um, I, I made it my business to zone in on these dozen individuals. Many of us were quite challenged. Um, was this some bit of disinformation? If so, very well constructed. Was it uh, a true leak of a genuinely um, sweepingly historic document? And would these 12 individuals um, who uh, allegedly were arrayed around Truman uh, to help get to the bottom of this and come up with some answers about this uh, anomalous phenomena, have known each other? Would they have been the people to choose? Did they interact in their lives? Um, and I became quite obsessed with it at the time, started several notebooks. And um, after some study, I, I kind of worked my way down to three individuals, um, uh, Forrestal, um, uh, a man named Vannevar Bush, no relation to the presidential family, but probably the most extraordinary figure in American history in the 20th century, scientifically speaking, that very few people have heard of, along with Forrestal, and another gentleman. And um, I was having dinner with my parents one night when this was all running through my brain. And I, I laid it out to my mother, who was very sharp-minded and very politically aware, and remembered that period of time uh, when Forrestal became a prominent public figure. And she said, um, do Forrestal. And I said, mm, that's what I was leaning toward, but why? She said, well, number one, you have no idea of how important he was to our efforts to win the war uh, as uh, assistant and then secretary of Navy, and then, of course, uh, after the war, um, creating the Department of Defense. And he was incredibly charismatic. And um, when he died, and she said when he committed suicide, because that was what Americans had been told, and that's what they believed, um, it was a terrible, terrible day, not unlike my memories of um, when I was a boy and President Kennedy was murdered. Mm -hmm. And then she said, and I also had a crush on him. I thought, whoa, my mom had a crush on James Forrestal. I'm going to research this guy. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I worked on and off, as is my habit, um, in some cases, for years coming and going from the subject. I began to uh, look into his life. This is all pre-internet. Uh, and... Um, in 1987, and didn't give my first talk on him until 2004 or so. So I was involved in researching for 15 odd years before I opened my yap about it. And by then I had uh, done quite a lot of homework and enough that I felt I had the kind of evidence that one could bring to a court of law to establish of course, purely in circumstantial terms, I did not have, you know, a smoking gun, uh, so to say, but I had an awful lot of smoke and a great deal of different kinds of evidence that this individual had been murdered and mm -hmm. that he had not committed suicide, as uh, history tells us. And then I put it aside again, brought it up again years later, and then did it again. Uh, about a year and a half ago, certain subjects you just are compelled 
to return to when you do investigative work. It's not necessarily time sensitive, um, but when all is said and done, I feel James Vincent Forrestal was an extraordinary individual, um, a true patriot, a word that is overused, uh, to put it mildly, um, in modern times, that he gave his all to help his country in a time of greatest need, um, sacrificed his his private life to a good degree, and ultimately um, it was too much for him. Um, Specifically, what I contend, um, is that a major contributing factor, and one can never say definitively that somebody was driven to a nervous breakdown, suicidal depression, taking their life, or having it taken from them in this case, um, for a specific cause without other ones, because we don't know what it is like to be them. Um, But I contend, and I think I, I make a good case for it, that once he was charged with being the Secretary of Defense, the first Secretary of Defense, he became the second most powerful man in the world. And one need only read the description, uh, the job description of Secretary of Defense, superimpose it on that time. Uh, He was sworn in about seven weeks after Roswell, uh, as the Cold War was formalizing itself. In fact, many American historians date the true formal beginnings of our so-called Cold War with the Soviet Union from the summer of 1947. It superimposes itself precisely on the birth of the modern UFO phenomena. And that in that role, as Secretary of Defense, the most knowledgeable man uh, in terms of our defense establishment, and the one with the most powerful, most power right up there next to President Truman, he was unable to affect the situation at all for the full time he was Secretary of Defense, and for a number of personal reasons, um, it weighed very heavily on him, and he broke under the strain. At least that was part of it. And uh, that's the basis um, of, of the research that I've done. Let's talk a little bit about his his background, because this is no, I mean, we're, in, in light of the, his nervous breakdown and uh, what they said was a suicide, but is possibly a murder. You know, this was not, this is no lightweight. I mean, this is not someone that's just going to break under pressure. Because, I mean, no, I you're think his background right, shows that. Yes. He, um, if, well, let me begin by saying for any of um, your listeners who are readers, um, if F. Scott Fitzgerald had based um, the great Gadsby, Jay Gadsby, uh, on a real person, it might as well have been James Forrestal. It mm. wasn't. But he was a real-life Gatsby. He was born in a small town in upstate New York in uh, 1892, as I recall. Um, Irish-American, um, a high achiever, uh, went from high school um, to um, Dartmouth, transferred to Princeton, um, set his sights on living in the world of wealth and power if he could make it, uh, made many uh, friends and acquaintances who later in life uh, he he reconnected with 
and um, was driven um, to make a, a true American success of himself. Uh, but he loved his country to a degree that I, I think is a little hard for a lot of us to relate to in modern times. When um, America uh, went into the First World War, he left Princeton, I think three weeks short of graduation. He just left, uh, went to Canada to train to be an RAF uh, fighter pilot, but the war ended before he could see service. And he um, basically had a short stop there on Wall Street and went back to Wall Street to become a broker and a wealthy person. Um, he did just that, became head of an important brokerage, uh, saw it through um, the great stock market crash. It was one of the few major firms on Wall Street that did not uh, crash and burn. And throughout that period of time, uh, the darkest days of the Depression and into the, uh, the 30s, into that recovery period, he lived the life of a millionaire. Um, his friends were among the wealthy and the famous. They included great writers, uh, well-known actors, uh, any number of figures in public life, including Irving Berlin, uh, Gary Cooper, uh, Harpo Marx, um, uh, Dorothy Parker, um, quite a pantheon of, of minds. And one of his colleagues at um, Princeton, who really uh, understood what a bright young man he was, um, and that man's name was Ferdinand Eberstadt, was already working um, on recovery uh, uh, issues under President Roosevelt and brought Forrestal to Roosevelt's attention. Roosevelt reached out to him and offered him an opportunity to join what was euphemistically called in the 1930s the Kitchen Cabinet, uh, kind of a play on words there, uh, also known as the dollar-a-year men. These were extremely successful um, individuals who had made a success of themselves in business, uh, continued to do so through the dark days of the Depression, and were invited to move to Washington, D.C., and serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States to help generate ideas and programs to get us out of the depression for this they put their business careers on hold picked up their own expenses and were paid one dollar uh, a year for the privilege um, hmm. most of them stayed for a while and then went back to private life Forrestal never left he uh, was in a unhappy marriage uh, a very neurotic marriage both he and his wife um, uh, uh, kind of spinning out of control in terms of many affairs, no love lost between them. Now, was she the and one that was the Ziegfeld girl? You mentioned that in the she, article. She was. She okay. was a, a former Ziegfeld Follies um, performing beauty. Yeah, I thought that was uh, when interesting. She, yeah. When, when she and James met, um, she was an editor at Vogue magazine, uh, a very glamorous um, woman, uh, Josephine Ogden, um, possibly schizophrenic, certainly like um, a lot of people at the time, you know, living the high life through the roaring 20s. And on the outside, they seemed to have, you know, a real picture book marriage. But uh, he was unfaithful from the start. And yet they had a life together and plenty of money. Um, people who know New York City a little bit uh, might 
more are aware of, of some of the more uh, romanticized locations might be familiar with a uh, a street called Sutton Place. It's a multi-millionaire's um, kind of one-block uh, lair on the east side. Um, and um, they decided to buy a lot there and build a private house. I mean, who does that in New York City? Um, that house still stands. It's a beautiful home. When he left, he sold it to Irving Berlin. Um, but in Washington, um, he distinguished himself extremely well. And as we moved through the 30s, um, the president made him deputy secretary of the Navy in charge of all procurement and distribution of materials for the pre-war Navy, a huge gargantuan task by any uh, standards, and he thrived in it. He, he loved working in the stress. Absolutely. He um, was tireless. And then um, the war came. Um, he served with great distinction, and when Secretary of the Navy Knox uh, died of a heart attack, I think in 1944, Forrestal became Secretary of Navy. And, I mean, I, I don't even know if we can imagine a, a modern secretary of a military branch. Um, and, of course, at the time, there was no Secretary of Defense. There was a Secretary of Army, a Secretary of Navy. And he threw himself into the job and the locations. He didn't stay in Washington. He was at the Battle of Leyte Gulf, Iwo Jima, um, on carriers offshore, ashore, during combat, um, he distinguished himself. And by the end of the war, uh, Roosevelt had passed away in April. The war ended during the summer well, in Germany in April and um, August uh, for Japan. And Truman had an idea, which was we had had something in place since the American Revolution called the War Department, a name that I always thought was um, extremely honest. And very straightforward. Um, no room for uh, any hesitation or double entendre there. Um, I've heard it said and, that we have we've had more wars under the Defense Department than we've had under the War Department. Just that's just an that's aside. Fair. I yeah. think that's absolutely right. And most of them have not been declared yeah. uh, as they're supposed to be by Congress. Uh, and we're in several right now, only for seventeen years, though. Yeah, it's no sign mind. of stopping. It's a nightmare. Um, but he, uh, the president asked Forrestal, not a committee, to literally dismantle the old War Department and create a new thing called the National Military Establishment, which became known as the Department of Defense. Uh, it was a doubly challenging job because all of the service branches the Army, the Navy, the Marines, which spring from the Navy, and the new kid on the block, the Air Force, were all freaking out. Were they going to get, um, you know, equal funding? Was one going to be favored? Uh, Farsal was a Navy man. Um, would he favor the Navy? And the infighting around him, um, once again, uh, made his life uh, a cauldron uh, of conflict, and he made it through brilliantly well. And um, that brings us up to 1947, when the world changed in a number of respects. Uh, and that summer, um, what we then called 
uh, aerial phenomena, unidentified um, uh, aerial phenomena, flying disks, flying saucers, uh, began to fill the skies and be observed by very credible observers here and then abroad. Um, but at first in Washington State, and then very noteworthy uh, in Roswell, New Mexico, in that area. Uh, many of us feel that the Roswell area was of particular interest to the intelligences behind these advanced uh, aerial objects because it was the home um, of the Roswell Army Airfield, a very small military uh, base, but the home of the 509th Atomic Bomb Wing, the only nuclear strike force in the world at the yeah. time. I think people forget and, how significant that was. Yes. In fact, I try to remind people sometimes um, that not only, as you note, Adam, um, is that significant, but in August of 1945, 22 or so months uh, before the events um, of the crash of an unknown object or objects uh, outside of Roswell, New Mexico, on the plains some dozens of miles away, um, a lone B-29 um, left, I believe it was Hangar 2, I think it's Hangar 2 that's the only standing hangar from that era, uh, still on the uh, the base, um, it flew to California and then flew to a small atoll in the, specific, in the Pacific where something called the Gadget was attached. And then it flew on to Japan and dropped this thing on the city of Hiroshima. The Enola Gay began its bombing mission uh, to Hiroshima from Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's... That's right. I mean, when you think about it, that is true. Yeah, and that's part of our history that, um, mm -hmm. you know, is just below the surface that mm, a lot of people still mm, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nod, nod. Um, but Forrestal, uh, again, was sworn in as Secretary of Defense in September, I think about the 18th uh, of 1947, and even that circumstance of his swearing in uh, is noteworthy. Um, it happened very suddenly and without warning. Uh, President Truman was returning from a state visit to Brazil at the time and was literally on board an American battleship when he cabled um, Washington that Forrest all should be sworn in that afternoon by the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, which he was. And... Um, this was seen by uh, opponents uh, led by um, Henry Wallace, who was uh, planning a run uh, against Roosevelt in the next election, um, or had just uh, run against him previously. I'm going to recheck that. Um, saying, why? What is the emergency? Um, if there is no emergency, this is the worst kind of fright-mongering, and if there is an emergency, what is it? Well, as it turns out, that's the day that this MJ-12 document um, comes into fruition. And for anybody who maintains that it's not authentic and that it's uh, a piece of disinformation, um, it's three days before the so-called Twining Memo, 
a uh, very important two-and-a-half-page memorandum, uh, secret at the time, issued by General Nathan Twining, who was very involved in the early days of uh, the insiders uh, of this whole flying saucer mystery, uh, contains a very famous quote, which is, the phenomena reported as something real and not visionary or fictitious. And um, was um, Twining, you know, laughed at for this, uh, or did he lose his career for taking it so seriously? Uh, no, he went on to become head of the Air Force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the timing. And from that day on, uh, we can certainly deduce, assume, and know as well as we can that whatever Harry Truman knew about the UFO situation, not called UFOs then, of course, uh, his Secretary of Defense knew. And the Secretary of Defense not only was cleared to know these things, the Secretary of Defense was cleared to create policy on their own. Um, He really was the second most powerful man in the world at the time. And uh, Forrestal had a habit, uh, a deeply ingrained habit, I'll even call it neurotic, of personalizing all of his professional successes and failures. Most of us, you know, um, we screw up at work. It's not good. It's not fun. Um, It can be embarrassing, humiliating. It can cost us uh, professionally. But you go home and you let it go, or you let it go to a degree and, you know, have a private life and come back and handle it. Uh, that was not James Forrestal's way, and it ate at him. Uh, he headed, again, the most powerful military establishment, arguably, in the history of the world, or um, uh, let's say uh, the last 12,000 years or so. Uh, and he could do nothing. Nothing that he did affected the situation, gave them more knowledge, um, helped them to crack the technology, and it, it wore on him. It wore on him. Um, Forrestal was known far and wide as being not just um, a charming guy, a charismatic guy, but he was a real alpha male. Uh, he was an amateur boxer. He's a competitive golfer. He could have become a professional tennis player. He was a, a Kennedy-level womanizer. Um, He's the kind of guy who is repeatedly described in so many things that I've read about him as when he walked into the room, he was the guy that all the women wanted to sleep with and all the guys wanted to have a drink with and hang out with. Um, And he was also a very sensitive soul. He was a scholar. Um, He studied ancient Greek. Uh, He he was familiar with the Greek dramas and tragedies and um, a very well-read individual, again, who had friends who were intellectuals as well as uh, alpha males. And um, it, a tough exterior, uh, I think a, a fairly sensitive interior, and he cracked under the weight of his position, of the knowledge that he had. Um, and he really went under literally the day that he retired. Um, I'm sure it was building, but he just was not showing it. And everything came tumbling down within an hour of his stepping down from uh, being um, secretary and the second secretary moving into that position. 
there is no question, sadly, it's very well documented, that those first 48 hours after the fact, he actively tried to take his life at least three times that I'm aware of and was um, institutionalized in Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland, um, appropriate. He was a former Secretary of Navy, after all, and was held there for six weeks, um, initially heavily sedated, but then not so. And he began to respond to um, the treatment that he was being given. Unfortunately, in 1949, um, there was reason ample reason for the most powerful men surrounding Harry Truman to be concerned. In this day and age, is there anybody that we know that either has not been in therapy of some sort themselves or who knows somebody who has been in therapy or has a family member who has been in therapy? Again, that phrase, in therapy, can be taken with a certain amount of latitude but I think it's fair to say it is a part of life in the Western world for many people, not all people, but everybody knows somebody who has seen a mental health professional at one point in their life or has seen one themselves, yes. fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. In 1949, it was probably just the opposite. Yep. Maybe, and I'm just grabbing this figure out of the air, maybe one person in 100 or 500 knew somebody who had seen a psychiatrist, or if they were very wealthy, had you know, uh, gone to Vienna to um, uh, have some sessions with the famous Dr. Freud, but no. Um, and in that circle of ultimate, ultra-alpha males, um, these powerful white men surrounding President Harry Truman right at the birth of the Cold War Nervous breakdowns were for sissies. They were for girls. Men did not have nervous breakdowns, please. And here is the ultimate alpha male, somebody who is looked up to, highly regarded, tremendous respect within this very tight, very powerful community, who completely crashes and burns. If it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. But more to the point, if it happened to him, and he recovered in quotes, might not he have um, a relapse? And if so, this was a man who knew where the bodies were buried allegorically. He knew everything. He knew everything about this ultra-above-top-secret security situation of these machines from undetermined origin, under intelligent control, that we were working very hard to convince Americans, and with great success, did not exist and was anything else, mass hallucinations, Soviet uh, secret weapons, us testing out, you know, advanced forms of V2s, uh, war jitters, um, refractions of light off of low-flying, low-hanging clouds, dust on the eyeball, as one study in the New York Times said. I mean, we are talking a lot of first-class BS here, uh, but America bought it. We never heard that one, drunk. dust on the eyeball. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that's a new Absolute one on me. Dust on the eyeball. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, rest easy, America, uh, and dust off those eyeballs. Um, but <laughs> That makes me think, too, that um, 
you know, at the I guess at the time we were also beginning a lot of the research into mind control, and a lot of those the goals of that was to break an individual down. So that that might have kind of created some distress as well. Like maybe he's under the influence of somebody, and you know. Well, you're like absolutely that. right, and that's a factor we do have to can take into consideration as well. Um, there are any number of possibilities, but in terms of true-life Greek tragedy, James Forrestal had to die. Uh, my, one of my favorite mob aphorisms, it's, as the hitman gives you right before he gives you two in the back of the head with the silent 22, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Um, as long as Forrestal was institutionalized, and could be kept away from the public and ideally kept institutionalized or kept drugged. But no, um, he was treated with high regard. He was a very high-ranking uh, bureaucrat. It's, I think, fair to say, and from what I've studied, deduced, and learned, um, he was not um, the doctors who were trying to get him better were not cleared to know about you know, flying saucers and their implications. They were just treating him the way that was prescribed at the time, and it started to work. And in fact, having looked at, having read the hospital records, having read uh, memoirs by so many people who knew him, um, there is no question that he was fully on his way to recovery. It is attested to in the hospital records by the physicians attending to him, by the people closest to him that were visiting him, by the physical description of him getting his appetite back, gaining weight again, taking uh, uh, pride in his appearance again, um, and then his brother Henry um, arranging to have him complete his recovery at the estate of a friend and arranging that he would be picked up on Sunday, May 22nd, uh, with the full support of all of the personnel who had anything to do with his case, and certainly in public, uh, the support of the President of the United States. Um, and some hours before he was due to be released, he allegedly uh, was looked in on by an attendant who was new, um, his normal guy, for whatever reason, did not show up that night. Um, and the attendant allegedly forgot to lock his room at uh, 1.30 in the morning, came back and checked a few minutes later to find him gone. And if we are to believe the official account, hours before he's to be released, something he is very upbeat about, um, he goes into a profound suicidal depression in the course of a minute walks out of his bedroom, his, the room he's been um, kept in for six weeks, been living in around the clock, um, walks into a small efficiency kitchen across the hallway that does not have secured windows, takes the sash off his bathrobe, ties it very tightly around his neck, and then initial reports said the other end was tied around the radiator, below the window so that he was going to hang himself out of the 16th floor window and then the sash cord got loose then that was established that no he just had tied this thing around his neck and decided to jump out the window but apparently changed his mind at the last minute 
because um, the jam below the window is covered with fingernail scratch marks of somebody seemingly desperately trying to not fall to their death. Uh, And that is the very tip of the iceberg of the evidence uh, that uh, flies in the face of him deciding to take his own life rather than having it taken from him. Yeah, because if he was going to hang himself, why not just hang himself in the room? Well, you know, thank you for mentioning that. Um, (laughs) Not for this reason, but because um, I was brought up by uh, parents who uh, instilled in me and my sisters that we should be of service in our communities, if not all the time, some of the time. And um, from 1988 until 1996, with several very needed breaks, um, I served as a crisis intervention volunteer uh, on the busiest suicide hotline in the United States, um, to put it bluntly, and for half of that time also was a shift supervisor. Um, And I bring it up because for a good part of that time, I, I was working on developing material around Forrestal, and had occasion to speak with a number of mental health professionals whose specialties were um, suicidal depression. And I sketched out the basics of this, and I've spoken to other mental health professionals since, and not one of them has said, well, that's not uncommon that people hang themselves out of windows. Um, The universal opinion, at least that I came away with, was if somebody's going to hang themselves, they hang themselves. If somebody is going to jump to their death, they jump to their death. Not combine the two. I'm, you know, we're we're told that that's exactly what happened in the case of James Forrestal, although I have never found another record of it. But no, that's fairly far-fetched, especially given the other information surrounding the specific circumstances of him going out that window. (laughs) Until I heard this, I... I didn't know it was quite that elaborate. I thought yeah. I, I actually thought he was just he just if he committed suicide he just jumped out the window. Sure. I didn't know that well, they, one know, he tied that. something to the radiator and then tried to hang himself out the window. Yeah. It just yeah. Well, the Air Force did an, uh, the Air Force the Navy did an investigation that lasted exactly six days, yeah. and one of the first things that was discounted and then um, seen as a, a false flag was that the other end of the sash of his bathrobe had been tied to the radiator beneath the window. That had never happened. So we're supposed to assume that he goes into this depression, kicks out or knocks out the screen window um, uh, that separates, uh, you know, uh, that allows him to go out. Um, And then instead of just jumping, tightly ties his bathrobe cord around his neck and then changes his mind, indicated by all of the terrible fingernail scratch marks. Um, also, um, I, for years, that report was kept classified. Um, it was declassified in 2002, as I recall. I have since read it, and it's a, a fascinating investigation in what they don't explore and who they don't interview. And it included several photographs, including one that I I found 
very provocative and enigmatic uh, in that there is no reference to why it's included, but one can draw one's own conclusions, and that is of a broken glass on the carpet by his bed that one can say, oh, he broke a glass on the, you know, his carpet and then went and killed himself. Or maybe a glass was broken in a struggle to mm-hmm. get him out of that room. And the Navy photographer who went in um, felt it was significant enough that he photographed it. And it is included in the uh, investigatory file uh, looking into his quote-unquote suicide. So his suicide slash murder, (laughs) really, I mean, that circumstance is very similar to another circumstance of Frank Olson. Mm, Yeah. And um, I've talked about this on the show, but I'll reiterate it again. Sure. That... um, there is a, a documentary series on Netflix called Wormwood right now, and it's, it is all about Frank Olson and what happened with him. And Frank Olson, they actually, the son actually dug up the body, exhumed the body, mm-hmm. and had him re-examined, and it was believed that, without a doubt, that he was actually pushed, that it was actually mm-hmm. a murder. Yeah. And you have... Uh, all this with Frank Olson about the LSD, uh, the MK Ultra stuff that he was dosed with LSD, which he was. But his son now believes that what was that was just all a process to try to not get him to talk about germ warfare experiments that Fort Detrick, where he was, where he worked. Yeah. Uh, they were put. They were using germ warfare in Korea, which was being vociferously denied. I think by I think this is fifty one, so this is still the Truman administration. Um, there was another individual, I think, not too long after, or maybe even before Forrestal, Lawrence Dugan, that uh, had some kind of um, connection to Alger Hiss. He was a State Department employee, and he was pushed out of a window. I believe, yeah, from his office in New York in around Christmas of 1948. So this is actually a few months before um, Forrestal's death. And there was another guy that was associated with Dugan that actually was pushed down a stairwell. And in that documentary about uh, in Wormwood, they actually pull out a CIA manual, assassination manual from that time period that one of the main methods of assassination was throwing someone out of a window. And it's interesting too, that Forrestal feared that that was going to happen to him because he, um, the, uh, the Czech politician, Jan Masaryk, I think was his name. I don't know if that's, if I'm pronouncing that quite right, but he, um, supposedly committed suicide by falling out of a window right before the communists took over Czechoslovakia. And Forrestal was actually wrote and was actually concerned that he would be pushed out of a window. Where um, is that recorded that he, he was concerned about that? Uh, I think that's actually in 
this in this book that uh, I was going to get to here in a in a bit. Um, that uh, the Untold History of the United States, where they talk a little bit about Forrestal. Mm-hmm. But I would have to uh, I would have to find that reference. But apparently he had some kind of... Uh, oh, here it is. Um, he thought he would suffer the same fate as Czechoslovakian Foreign Minister Jan Masaryk to be pushed out of a window. I have to ask, is there um, an annotation there? Do we know the source of that? Um, I don't see one, but I can probably find it. If you could. There are, um, my, there's my extensive point here footnotes is simply... Here. There is so much um, allegation. There's so much yeah. speculation. Some of it very articulate, uh, very well thought out, and very possibly true. Um, for me, though, um, there is definitive material that um, one could bring into a court of law that is beyond question overall. And um, I'm always a stickler when it comes to... Uh, very provocative allegations that may be true, but if there is, you know, just somebody says they heard it from somebody and they can't remember their name or it appeared in, you know, some, well, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But do do let me know. I'd be curious to know. Um, there's all kinds of speculation and allegation uh, around Forrestal, and some of it has been used very creatively um, to add color or to flesh out something that may have happened and is put forward that it did happen, but not with any real proof. Um, in um, um, Paul David's wonderful film, Roswell, uh, about Jesse Marcel, I think it's one of the finest treatments um, of the pressure that individuals were under in the early days of the uh, cover-up and the phenomena, and done with a lot of heart, um, Paul creates a scene where an actor playing Forrestal um, is in New Mexico observing um, a living other intelligence, a, a being from parts unknown, through a glass window and looking quite horrified. Um, it may have happened. But it may not have happened, and it's acknowledged that that is, um, you know, uh, artistic liberty and speculation sure. yeah. on something that may have happened. But um, I have tried very hard in, in developing the talks that I've done and the articles on Forrestal and my continuing work to be hyper-specific to what I can back up um, in the world of scholarship or law, um, and tempting as it is to distance myself from, um, oh, it's so tempting, uh, but just what we're talking about here. Um, well, and it may well be that uh, Forrestal was concerned uh, about yeah. this and pointed to Masaryk's uh, death as an example, and it may well not. Yeah, see, to me that would lend credence to the theory that he was pushed and that he was killed. Because if he was actually concerned that that might happen to him, then someone, why would he actually do it? You know, if he didn't want to be pushed out of a window, why would he go out of a window? 
I don't know. <laughs> Again, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're entering the world of yeah. total speculation. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd have to see if I can track down. I, I, I see yeah, that there, can, there's a um, there's a footnote before, actually, in the paragraph before, that cites. Um, let's see. It cites an actual, I think, a, a book by George Will. So, well, there's a credible person, no question about that. Um, to see what chapter, what chapter this is, chapter six. So, go to the footnotes, and the, this book is pretty extensively footnoted. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just no footnote right after that, that, that one, that one chapter. Mm -hmm. Or that one paragraph that he talks about Mazar, uh, him being concerned about uh, being pushed out the window. I or should Mazar. say for for anybody interested um, in the life of James Forrestal, um, and I, I mean the life of the man, um, not covered from a sensationalistic point of view. The definitive biography on him is um, a book called Driven Patriot. The Life and Times of James Forrestal, and it's written by um, the uh, well-known historian Douglas Brinkley and a man named Townsend Hoops, who was, I, as I recall, I think an undersecretary of the Air Force, who as a young intern uh, in the um, 1940s, later 1940s, actually served under Forrestal. And oh, fate being what it is, I actually knew Townsend Hoops in passing, um, because he was a board member of the nonprofit repertory company that I was house manager for in New York City for a number of years. And I would see him regularly, like three times a year, um, and make nice small talk with him in my tuxedo, he and his, at openings. And I did not know until it was too late that he knew Forrestal and had co-written a very important book on him, uh, we had a mutual friend who, when she put it together, immediately called Hoops, um, got his wife on the phone. I was at her apartment at the time to find out that he was in end stages of the cancer that killed him. So, uh, you know, uh, it's it's just one of those crazy moments in your life where you were so close to speaking to someone hmm. who, and who at that, after he left uh, the Pentagon, uh, and started teaching at Georgetown, was very open about his interest in UFO phenomena and would have been a remarkable guy to connect with. And, of course, that was not fated to be. Um, but Driven Patriot is probably going to remain the definitive establishment biography uh, of um, uh, Forrestal. However, if you're you know, a good book hunter in the used book realm, the Forrestal Diaries, which is more than 350 pages, of his multi-thousand page pages of diary from 1940 to 1949, you can get a sense of what a bright, engaging, uh, observant um, participant this man was in his times. And um, I just recommend it very highly, both of those books. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I'd like to find out more, more, more about him. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's some there's some things uh, made out about Forrestal about the significance of that he was writing on he was writing before whatever happened happened. 
and oh, yeah. the last word yeah. was nightingale. And then also too, <laughs> yeah. you mentioned you mentioned in uh, the, your article that that I read um, that right before well he starts to have the nervous breakdown, and he is saying um, something to the effect of. You are, he's mumbling to himself, you are a loyal fellow, you are a loyal fellow. Well, yeah, two separate things here. Um, yeah. Um, immediately following the change of command ceremony at the Pentagon, where he stepped down, and our second uh, Secretary of Defense took uh, the oath of office, that's Lewis Johnson, who is a uh, Democratic uh, political appointee and... Um, I don't think the best guy for the job, but uh, he had worked hard for the party, and they gave it to him. Um, Forrestal um, had had a, a brief exchange with Stuart Symington, who was the first secretary of the Air Force and made Forrestal's life hell to a degree by demanding funding and getting in his face regularly. We don't know what went on between them, but Forrestal seemed to be very taken aback by whatever Symington had told him and disappeared, and they couldn't find him for a while in the Pentagon, and when they did, they found him in his old office sitting at his desk, basically staring out into space, saying, repeating the phrase, you are a loyal fellow, you are a loyal fellow, and continuing on uh, in that manner. Um, Again, a very tragic moment on the day that everything manifested uh, and he became completely undone. Hmm. What's the significance of Nightingale? Does that? Oh yes. Um, first, I should say in one account that I came upon only earlier this year, um, a researcher who was involved in this subject a dozen years ago maintains that there are discrepancies in the handwriting in question. Um, and Forrestal's known handwriting. I have not been able to establish that for myself. But um, the main accounts, which have been accepted by a lot of people, is that on that um, early in the morning when he was looked in on by his um, attendant, his new attendant for the night, and asked if he wanted a sleeping pill or anything else, he was copying a Sophocles poem. Uh, a poem by the Greek poet uh, Sophocles um, out of a poetry anthology that had been edited by Mark Van Doren, who was the poet laureate, I believe, at the time in the United States, and copying it out on um, stationery from the hospital and had was writing the word nightingale, but had just written the first syllable of it, night. And that's where the copying allegedly stops, which I found, well, kind of fascinating. Um, Why, if one has taken it upon oneself to um, follow this intellectual um, uh, diversion, let's call it, of copying out a classic poem uh, onto a piece of stationery from a book, why would you stop mid-word rather than at the end of a word or the end of a sentence or the end of a paragraph? Well, one reason is perhaps you suddenly have a a tremendous urge to um, use the bathroom. Fair enough, you know it happens. Or you're interrupted. It happens. 
um, that would not um, surprise me based on the other information uh, trying to put together these last minutes of Forrestal's life. But there, um, again, I, I can't say definitively because I just don't know um, if indeed this part of the story is true. Um, but then one has to say, well, if not, somebody created that piece of paper, um, which would be weird because one would think that, you know, if there was some kind of conspiracy here to cover up uh, a murder, that the last thing you would want to do was create a false piece of evidence to make it seem that there was foul play. Uh, hence, you know, a fake attempt to uh, replicate his handwriting. Um, and, you know, um, all we can do in this kind of investigative research is find as much factual material as we can, use our God-given common sense, our uh, ability to reason, and our critical thinking in putting things together. Um, I, I lean toward um, the possibility that this is an authentic part of the story, uh, and if so, that there was an interruption. Uh, a glass was broken. Um, his bathroom robe cord was tied around his neck. He was taken across the hallway at a quarter of two in the morning, probably with nobody in that hallway at the time, forced out that window, and the rest, as they say, is history. Is there any other significance that you found to that uh, particular poem? I guess it's the tragedy of, of Ajax. Um, is there anything that might have triggered that, you think, or is there th are there themes in the poem? That's a good question. It's been quite some years since I actually read the whole poem, and it is a classic Greek epic. Um, I honestly don't remember. I honestly don't remember. That's a great question, though. I was looking and, into it a little bit, and I think that Ajax yeah. actually falls on his sword. He kills himself. Yeah. So that's well. I what people, that is yeah. for me. That was a connection, and thank you for the reminder that I made early on. Um, for me. Forrestal understood all too well what was happening, that he was losing it because he took this responsibility as sacred. He was the first Secretary of Defense. He was the second most powerful man in the world. He owed it to the nation that he loved. He owed it to the president that he served to do his best. And what had he been able to do? Uh, against this unknown, mysterious, uh, potentially dangerous threat to humanity. Absolutely nothing. And I believe, just as you said it there, he did try, try to throw himself on his sword, literally, um, several times until he was subdued and put under 24-hour-a-day watch, three Marine guards, eight-hour shifts, heavily sedated the first couple of weeks, but then not after that. And never more than in being transferred from, um, at, 
he was taken um, to Hobe Sound, Florida, where uh, a friend who was a um, an associate of his uh, had a, a, a home, and that was Robert Lovett, who went on to become uh, a future Secretary of Defense. Uh, Ferdinand Eberstadt, his mentor, um, brought him down there with a, um, the head of neuropsychiatry at um, uh, Bethesda. Uh, and while he was being transferred from Lovett's home to an airfield nearby to get the flight that would take him to Maryland and being institutionalized, he tried to throw himself out of the moving car several times. I mean, that's about as literal. Um, he he knew. He had to be a good soldier. Um, he broke, and he had to die. But then something happened that I don't think anybody had really anticipated, which was once he was institutionalized at Beth- Bethesda, and we can only speculate on this. There's no way of knowing definitively he was being treated in earnest by um, some of the uh, best and most respected mental health professionals and, and psychiatric medical people to restore him to good mental health, and he began to respond to treatment and began to regain the will to live, manifested specifically and documented in his high, in his hospital records as gaining weight, taking uh, pride in his appearance again, shaving, um, uh, being more conversant, looking forward to leaving the institution, maybe even hoping against hope that this was all somehow going to blow over. Um, There was nobody more loyal um, than James Forrestal. Um, And I think had his word been enough for the President of the United States or those men around him, and we can only guess at what Truman knew. Uh, In fact, Truman may have not been inside on this uh, to preserve what we call plausible denial, and this plot might have been emerged with the men around Truman and not directed by him. But as far as they were concerned, again, this was 1949, not 2018, and you had a nervous breakdown, and you're a guy, and you're an alpha male, and you're the toughest guy in the pack. We can't allow this possibility. Again, it's nothing personal. You've got to die. It's not even out of the question that the individuals who forced him out of that window, they were not hired hitmen. You know, you want to keep the circle as small as possible they might have actually been some of these people around Truman who might well personally have held Forrestal in great personal esteem, respected him, admired him, um, understood that he was a true patriot, but they couldn't take the chance. Another similarity between him and Frank Olson is that Olson also started getting better, too. So that's another that's another par- parallel between the two men. The experiences yeah. are very similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is a Greek tragedy, and um, when James Forrestal uh, was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, 
I believe, three days after he went out of that window. At least 5,000 people were in attendance. He had a 19 howitzer salute. The president of the United States led the eulogies. And then he was pretty much forgotten by the people of the United States. Uh, and when his name did come up, it was, oh, yes, the tragedy of James Forrestal's suicide and being worn out and stressed out by all of his work during World War II and, you know, the stress of the Cold War that uh, had grown up under his shift and um, that he died as though he were in combat and was seen that way allegorically. But the fix was in, and America believed and had no reason to question because they knew by then that UFOs were nonsense and flying saucers and little green men were all explainable in conventional terms. Nothing to see here, folks. Keep moving. I want to I wanna get your opinion on something, Peter. Um, sure. So this... Um, this this to me is like an alternate explanation. Uh, so I thought this was interesting, so I wanted to share this with you. Uh, mm-hmm. This is from the Untold History of the United States, the book version, not the Showtime documentary. Uh, and who who's the author? Oh, well, Oliver Stone, but I would say that Peter Kuznick is the probably the main author. Understood. Yeah. Uh, of the book. Um, Oliver Stone's name is on the top, but I'm pretty sure Peter sure. Kuznick wrote most wrote most of it. Some very interesting things in this book. I highly recommend it. Um, if you if I was as I was telling Peter before, if you've ever read People's History of the United States, it is pretty much a Howard companion Pitt. volume to that. Um, interesting. So here's some things about Forrestal um, that I found interesting. In late September 1947. Kennan, that's George Kennan, urged Forrestal to establish a guerrilla warfare corps, a suggestion Forrestal heartily endorsed, although the Joint Chiefs of Staff recommended against establishing a separate guerrilla warfare school and corps. In December, Truman approved secret annex NSC 4-A, authorizing the CIA to conduct convert operations, covert operations. He had dismantled the OSS's covert paramilitary operations capabilities in September 1945, but now he brought them back in force. In the summer of 1948, he approved NSC 10-2, which called for propaganda, economic warfare, preventive direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas, and refugee liberation groups and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. These activities were to be done in a way that would afford the U.S. government plausible deniability. In August 1948, Truman approved NSC-20, which authorized guerrilla operations in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Evenly, the seemingly benign Marshall Plan provided a cover for subversion, Half of the 10% of the money allocated for administrative costs was siphoned off to fund covert actions through the CIA's Office of Policy Coordination, whose director, Frank Wisner, would actually report to the Secretaries of Defense and State. Mm -hmm. Tom Weiner described it as a global money laundering scheme. Colonel Alan, R. Allen Griffin, who headed the Marshall Plan's Far East Division, confessed, we'd look the other way and give them a little help, tell them to stick their hand in our pocket. 
Kennan, the architect of this effort, described it as the inauguration of organized political warfare. With the diverted funds, the CIA established a network of phony front organizations that recruited foreign agents as frontline warriors in the propaganda wars that ensued. Sometimes they went beyond propaganda, infiltrating unions and other existing organizations and establishing underground groups. Forrestal and the Pentagon wanted the programs to go further, including guerrilla movements, underground armies, sabotage, and assassination. Some of the diverted martial aid money went to supporting a guerrilla army in Ukraine called Nightingale, which had been established by the Wehrmacht in the spring of 1941 with the help of Stephen Bandera, head of the Ukrainian national organization's more radical OUN-B. The following year, Mykola Lebed funded the organization's terrorist arm, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. It was made up of ultra-nationalist Ukrainians, including Nazi collaborators who wreaked havoc in the region, assisting in or directly carrying out the murder of thousands of Jews, Soviets, and Poles, and occasionally also fighting the Germans who opposed OUN-B plan for a separate Ukrainian state. In 1944, Lebed helped form the Supreme Ukrainian Liberation Council, UH. VR, which served as the organization's political arm. So, um, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. That Nightingale comes up when his the as we were talking about before, where he had uh, uh, later on in the book, it says he said up uh, um. But his condition began to improve, and on the night of May 22, 1949, he stayed up late copying Sophocles, the chorus from Ajax, in which the hero ponders his fate far from home. At the word Nightingale, he he put his pen down and jumped. Now they, which is surprising for Oliver Stone, but they, uh, I think, believe that he that he committed suicide. But uh, I think everything that we've talked about says that he was killed. So... That's an interesting alternate theory if he might have felt some guilt for, I don't know, funding some fascist organization. Well, I'm, I, if I got that right, the Nightingale organization existed in the early 40s, and this right. is, is something he would have had absolutely nothing to do with. Um, in no way, shape, or form, just that um, he was copying a word that happened to be the name of that paramilitary uh, or that operation. Um, It sounds like seven or so years earlier when, again, he would have had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, but wasn't he wasn't he involved in some of the the uh, paperclip type of arrangements to well I mean, first the... your Nightingale if I if I heard you right dates from like 1942 or right. something yeah it it does it's during World War II but it but it actually it actually did continue into into the post war age it started getting it started these guys were some still around and Operation they kept Gladio type of stuff. yeah they kept getting funded. Uh, this time by the American government as like a uh, a guerrilla warfare group, basically. And the name stayed Nightingale? Yeah. It was still referred to as Operation Nightingale. Huh. 
I don't know. Uh, it sounds a little far-fetched to me, and it, it almost sounds like they're saying he he's copying out this poem in the middle of no, the night, um, uh, the chorus from Ajax, and comes upon that word and writes the first part of the word and then goes into a su- suicidal depression over a memory of an operation and finds the door open and goes out into the next room and jumps out the window. Um, or could he have been, bit of a, or could he have been about to spill the beans on something like that? Or they were afraid he was, or maybe even it well, just made him think of, Oh wow. You know, while he was writing that, like, Oh, Nightingale. Like, he maybe. knew about that, but I don't <laughs> Again, think it would drive him to this is the, the depression. The, this is the most unfair kind of speculation to try to imagine, you know, I mean, it's not unfair, but, it's um it's 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 not really fair to make believe we can put ourselves in the place of this man sure. and yeah. you know jump the gun on something that's sort of really esoteric and spanning two different pieces of time and one of many 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 uh projects which he would have been aware of or involved in I also have to stress from his entire history um, in business um, as a civilian uh, working to help get us out of the Depression under Roosevelt, um, working in the Department of Navy as the um, Secretary of Navy, as the Secretary of Defense, uh, he was marked by his extraordinary loyalty and loyalty to individuals that he knew from when he was young as well. Uh, It was one of the central aspects of his character. So it's not like he, you know, there was something shady about him that needed to be concerned. Again, I'm the first to absolutely get that among those closest to Truman, who were concerned about secrets coming out that would be, to put it mildly, embarrassing, to the president of the United States and the United States government, they just didn't want to take a chance. Um, but I think, you know, um, using Stanton Friedman's terminology, that's going to have to stay in my gray box. I, I <laughs> that's 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 a leap. It's an interesting one. And again, whenever we come up against a highly specific name uh, that has, you know, symbolic impact actual uh, reference in terms of somebody's history or background, real coincidences are just that. Uh, There are points, of course, where coincidences go beyond um, a certain level of logic, and and one may ascribe that there is deeper meaning attached. Um, I don't know how I feel about this one. I I guess I I would like to read that and, and learn more from myself and get a fuller picture of um, uh, what Stone and his co-author lay out there. Yeah, also, too, I mean, they they don't, in, did you did you see the series, um, the Untold, Untold History of the United States? Have Not all of it, it, no, some of them. Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, they have the very, I think their own skewed version of history. Yeah. And um, there's, like, this version of history, and then there's like the real ultra conservative version of history, and somewhere in the middle, that's where the truth is. Mm. But it, yeah. it, they don't they don't really like Truman, 
and by default they don't like some of the other people that were around him that they believe were responsible for starting the cold war like uh burns and and forestall is one of them you know they see forestall as virulently anti-communist that they started it huh yeah yeah that's uh, Stone, in my opinion, he has a very a melodramatic version of history, which I think is kind of tempered a little bit in the book. But in the in the series, you can see it because he he really he tends to idolize people. You, you mentioned Henry Wallace yeah. earlier. Uh, yes. You know, he 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 has this whole idea that if Henry Wallace had not been kicked out from the vice presidential um, platform our position yeah. and then Truman put in that history would have gotten, would gone so much differently. We wouldn't have been in the cold war with the Soviets. And I think that's too simplistic. So there is a little bit of simplest, a little bit of simplistic um, viewpoint of history in this, in yeah. the series and kind of in the book as well. So you can kind of take it a little bit, a little bit with a grain of salt. Like, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem that, uh, like it, he has a very different viewpoint of Farsal than I think maybe like you do, you know, where sure. he's kind of a, more of a heroic kind of figure or, uh, but with, you know, they see that you know, these guys, they just, they wanted to start the, the cold yeah, war. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some truth to that, but at the same time you have to think that, you know, Stalin, you know, Stalin wasn't the best human being. <laughs> oh, no, I, Wallace was a fascinating figure. He was a great idealist. He was very charismatic. In fact, there's a brand new uh, biography out on him um, just this past uh, month. Um, at the same time, he he really was somewhat naive in terms of his idealism and hopes. Um, and and like a lot of well idealistic people who leaned to the left at the time, um, really did not get. Um, or allow themselves to to fully uh, get the monstrosity um, that that Stalin really was. Uh, he yeah. was functionally identical in, in many respects to Adolf Hitler, but with a very different style uh, and um, uh, approach to uh, absolute power. Um, in some ways, he was much worse than Hitler. In 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 many ways, I mean, Hitler well, would kill you because you were a Jew or a Gypsy. Um, Solomon would just kill you because he didn't like you. Well, Hitler would do that too. Right, um, right. I, I, I think there we're was off no... on a tangent here. Yeah, who's worse? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, that way lies madness. Yeah, that's that's kind of splitting hairs a little bit. That's your. <laughs> yeah, I save that for another show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you wrote a you said you wrote a play about um, Forrestal, or you are writing a play. Are you trying to get that I'm produced? I'm struggling with the possibility of one. I, um, yeah. I guess about two years ago or so, I started to um, think about what I do for a living in part, which is um, give talks in public, or appear on documentaries, or you know, spend time uh, with with people like your self on uh, a radio show where there's a free exchange of ideas or an interview format. And what I, I kept sort of focused on was whatever I do or my colleagues do to a great degree, we're speaking to the same audience that we usually speak to. 
um, an audience that already has an interest in UFOs, the paranormal, uh, mysteries in history, um, specific conspiracies, and the like, and that I, I really was, was thinking a lot about how to reach a completely different audience. Um, and I, I drifted into um, not an illogical idea for me, uh, which was um, a theater audience, um, in great part because I love the theater and um, because I worked in off-Broadway theater management for years in uh, when I was younger and worked with some wonderful actors and great plays. And... Um, began to take the Forrestal story and rework it to a degree into a dramatic reading rather than a lecture and a dramatic reading where instead of, you know, pu pushing a little button as I uh, advanced in my talk to have pictures appear on a screen next to me, to have them uh, a dedicated technician uh, working with the same script that I was and sticking to the script and not um, being extemporaneous, which I am like most of my colleagues, um, but that as I talked, those pictures would appear behind me and that um, I would endeavor to tell the story of James Forrestal as best I understood it um, in these dramatic terms and not as a UFO-related lecture. In fact, the idea, um, the that part of the story would not even enter into it until the last quarter of the story when uh, chronologically um, the UFO uh, situation emerges and some weeks after that, Forrestal becomes involved in it via his new job as Secretary of Defense. And I, I workshopped it a bit with several groups and in a staged reading um, at a friend's apartment in New York City for an audience of 20 or so, and realized this is not theater, and it's not a lecture, it's something in between, and that I could leave it like that or actually turn it into a authentic piece of theater, and that would mean taking it in one of several directions, none of which I'm completely comfortable with. One would be um, to bring in other characters and create dialogue, which means that for the first time in my professional life, I would be putting words in people's mouths based on what I thought that they might say, but that it would be artistic invention. And I've never dealt in nonfiction. And this is, I mean, I've never dealt in fiction. I, and this is a form of fictionalizing reality. Or to do it as a one-person play written, and written by me and perhaps a colleague um, for a professional actor playing Forrestal, but that brings in another challenge, which mm -hmm. is, hmm, at what point in his life would he be giving this 
you know, monologue well. Creatively speaking, in order to give the fullest rendering of his story, it would have to be telling it to us after he's dead, which is all right in the theater. But again, um, it would mean putting words in the mouth of a character called James Forrestal, words that I could say every one of them is based on my best take of reality. But And so I'm at that point, Adam, where I'm, I'm looking at a number of options, um, consulting with some friends from the theater uh, quietly on it, and in fact, um, I, I attended a, a performance of a play uh, just a few days ago, really, last week. Um, it was actually very special. Uh, my literary agent brought me to it. He's also a good friend, and um, it's a play that will open on Broadway next month. I think it's called The Lifespan of a Fact. And um, it stars three terrific actors, um, um, Bobby Cannavelli, um, whose name might not be terribly familiar to some of your listeners, but who um, had an amazing, played an amazing character in uh, the great uh, television drama a couple of seasons ago, Boardwalk Empire. Was he um, in the vinyl? Was... Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. There you go. That was a good he show. Was in that as well. It was a good show. Yes, it was. They, they um, didn't renew it for another season. Uh, ah. Yeah. Um, a, a wonderful actress who is not as well known as him in great part because she's done film and television work, but Cherry Jones is primarily a stage actress and one of our most brilliant. And then um, an actor who is very well known um, uh, whom in great part because he became a huge star playing a um a a warlock character in uh a series of films about one of the most famous schools for witches ever and i um uh daniel radcliffe is his name and he has played harry potter and here he plays a fact checker checking on an article that uh, a writer has written for Mad national magazine the writer being Bobby Cannavelli, and the editor-in-chief of the magazine, played by Cherry Jones, is concerned that all the facts in the article be correct. And although it sounds like, how can they write a play about a fact-checker checking facts in an article for an editor-in-chief, how could that possibly be interesting or entertaining or funny or moving? Well, it's an awesome play. And again, it will open on Broadway um, next month. And I've I've been talking to my agent about my uh, kind of where I stand on this Forrestal project. And he thought, well, uh, I represent the writer of this play. Uh, you're in town. Come along with me and uh, just see how this story, which is a true story, has been handled uh, with liberties. And, you know, put it into your equation and, and see how things continue to percolate for you. So if you um, get that produced, we're definitely coming up there. 
<laughs> well, I, I'd be honored. Uh, again, right now, um, it is in a state where um, it is in this funny um, not play and not lecture format, but something in between that does lend itself to the theater, a very dr- dramatic reading that is heavily illustrated. Um, and whether it becomes a actual piece of theater, time will tell. Excellent, Peter. Um, are you are you um, it, it, are you putting this into a book as well? Are you are you trying oh, to yes. focus on the? Yeah, I'll have a okay. new book out, um, probably well, certainly sometime next year, which will be an assortment of papers and essays, um, uh, articles. Um, oh, nice. Uh, really kind of a compilation of a lot of subjects that I've dealt with over the past years, but all brought together under one title and with a number of um, uh, treatments in it um, to connect it all up uh, from how I first became involved in the subject um, to the tremendous place that ridicule uh, plays in keeping it an outsider subject for the last 70-odd years and, um, uh, yeah, working away on that. And, again, that'll be out uh, sometime next year. Well, cool. Well, we look forward to, to seeing that and uh, getting you on about it as well. Uh, Absolutely. Peter, where can people find find you, or your web presence, and uh, get your get your other uh, books? Yeah. Um, well, right now, as a lot of uh, listeners know, um, my books uh, have been removed from the market because uh, my co-author on the best-known project I've ever been involved in, which is a a, a fairly substantial book on Britain's best-known UFO incident, the so-called Rendlesham Forest or Bentwaters incident of 1980, um, that there were uh, quite a number of inaccuracies, exaggerations, and outright lies in his account of the book we wrote together, Left at East Gate. And uh, I insisted that our publisher do their own investigation as I had done, and if they came to the same sad conclusions that I had, that I had been had to a great degree, uh, then that book needed to be taken off the market. In the meantime, I wrote two follow-up books, um, defending and continuing to champion uh, my co-author's account, and when I realized what had happened and had finished my own investigation, I removed those books from print. So uh, I am a published author, of, uh, including one uh, major bestseller in another country that has no books out right now, and that's a, a quirky place to be. So um, you can find me uh, 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 online um, on my website, which is kind of in an, a state of arrested development, but that's um, Peter Robbins NY for my home state. Uh, dot com peter robbins ny dot com um, i'm on facebook and anybody that needs to get in touch with me can do it through you or um through my facebook page you need to get that uh, your your website designer on that you tell him to hurry up i know. <laughs> he's got enough on his hands right now as we know <laughs> yeah yeah we we yeah. we love mr soraya yeah he's the best
All right, Peter. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to close this section out. Uh, but uh, Stay on the line for us. And guys, we'll be right back to close the show on Good Spirit Normal. So that was a good, interesting interview. Absolutely. A little longer, but uh, I think it uh, was very informative. I always enjoy having Peter on the show. He's he's definitely one of my favorite guests and somebody that, uh, through doing this, I consider a really good friend. Um, you know, I got to, I've gotten to hang out with him over there in uh, New York City, and then I uh, stayed with him uh, in Ithaca last year, and also hung out with Soraya there too. Cool. And Soraya, he doesn't actually live out in Ithaca. He lives out in the boonies, man. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. You know, I've been in Tennessee most of my life. And uh, the first time I'd ever really seen the Milky Way was somewhere in upstate New York. Okay. Uh, we get up to, uh, we'd actually gone down to see uh, Timothy Renner's. He was having a festival. He was having Al- Albatwitch Day. Down in like some place in Pennsylvania, southern Pennsylvania. Okay. So we drove. I think I remember back down. Yeah, we drove back down, and I did some recording over there, and then we drive back up, and we get back in uh, Soraya to Soraya's house, and uh, he's like, "Man, he's like, look up." And I look up, and it's just like amazing panorama, and I'm like, "Oh wow," you know, I never really had seen that because you know. I've lived in Nashville now for 15 years. I live in Atlanta three years before that. I'm from City. Chattanooga. So, you know, my, my my parents' neighborhood, it's a little bit, you know, out there. But there's still, it's a little neighborhood and there's still, you know, lights. And the, in the, so it was kind of, it was kind of a w- interesting experiment. I, I, I didn't even get to really see that in the desert, man, because I drove during the night when I was driving through California. Okay, yeah. But, uh. Yeah, uh, well, I drove during the day actually, but yeah, I always enjoy having always enjoy having Peter on. Uh, so you know, check out Peter's stuff. He, my goal is to bring Peter to Nashville at some point. So that'd be cool, Peter and Soraya too. I love to get Soraya down here too. Um, so did you have any thoughts about the interview, or did you have anything that you wanted to kind of? Yeah, it was kind of hit on that uh, you thought was interesting. Or? Just the fact that this was such a large public figure and how unknown it still is. Right. You know? I mean, I hadn't I hadn't heard about him until I got into this kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, paranormal UFO stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... He's not some fringe guy. I mean, this whole story is just, it's crazy. How oh, definitely not. Being the first Secretary of Defense. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a momentous thing to be the first Secretary of Defense. Uh, he to actually have come up with the plan. He actually was came up with the plan of combining all the forces. Mm-hmm. Um, it was between, I think... I was reading about this today, I think, between the Army and the Navy. 
uh, the, they each had their ideas of how they wanted to see that come about. And the Navy's plan actually won out over the Army's plan. So Forrestal was very instrumental in bringing that whole thing about of combining all the armed forces under one uh, umbrella of the Department of Defense. And I mean, who... It's just not in the. It seems I mean, like it's not in the public consciousness at all that this happened. This could have been someone that could have easily have been if he had lived. Could have might have been president. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, the first time I'd ever heard about Forrestal was actually that that movie that Peter mentioned about Roswell. That's the first time. I'm uh. I, the only thing that I would probably disagree with, I think, is just whether or not it's about UFOs. The Operation Nightingale stuff, to me, is pretty compelling. I'd like to learn more about evidence that links him to the the UFO phenomenon mm-hmm. and to Roswell, more, more specific stuff. Yeah, a lot of, some of that is, as Peter's talked about, and he, as he, as he kind of admitted, is in the MJ-12 documents. And right, the MJ-12 right. documents are very controversial. Yes, yes. Um, without going too much into it or why I think this, I think that possibly MJ-12 may have been a real study group, but it wasn't what guys like William Cooper that's where I was <laughs> said that, said that it was right that it just pulled the strings of everything right and this may have been a real study group by all these important guys because even though I'm not I'm not an I'm not an, an extraterrestrial hypothesis guy I do think that there was definitely and still is a real phenomenon going on and the and nature of it we don't really, really know really yeah. So they were probably really wondering, you know, why is this happening? What is this? Um, could this be something from the that the Soviets are doing or yeah. some other group is doing? Um, there could have been an actual real concern about it. And I think that later on, as the kind of the Cold War went on, they actually began to use this real phenomenon as a cover story for what they were doing. And so somebody realized eventually, oh, this could be a good cover story for our own top secret aircraft. You know, and I think that that worked. So you've got, you've got a combination there of two different, uh, two different things, the real phenomenon, and then using it as a cover story for, top secret for our own craft i want to read the rest of the sophocles poem um i read the you know excerpt that he copied Mm -hmm. and that had some symbolism in it that uh i wanted to think about more it said something about uh your son is in a foreign climb and you know maybe there's something maybe there's some more keys to the mystery in that that might give you a idea of what his mental state could have been at the time i've got it i think i got it pulled up here actually okay and if it wasn't him which there's speculation that it the handwriting doesn't match his etc perhaps it was placed there to say something yeah maybe um but that's all just speculation it's 
it's definitely compelling to me and obviously compelling to the guys that wrote this book that you have this thing called Operation Nightingale, which, yes, it started in 1941 under the Nazis, but managed to then continue after the war as this kind of stay-at-home group, kind of like Operation Gladio, as you mentioned. Yeah. And if it could have been revealed that we were helping out these fascists that we had just fought a war against, then that could have been some serious shit in 1949. Yeah. And if Forrestal, through whatever his mental state was, was that they were really concerned that something that he could, he could have been, he held a lot of secrets and he could have revealed it. And you know, you never know. Maybe those secrets did include UFOs. Uh, Frank Olson was the same, the same situation where now Frank Olson's son believes that, and this is actually not just his son. These are others that actually believe that Frank Olson was killed because he was going to spill the beans on German warfare in Korea that he had been himself had been working on. And then like him, so two very similar there's two there's yeah. a lot of similarity between the two cases between the two men. And then like him, you know, is there a possibility that his breakdown was induced also, you know, like what happened? I mean, this is a time when all that mind control stuff is first starting and of course, yeah. you know, them, you know, they're fumbling around and the easiest thing to do is just to break down a person into madness. You know, the, Do you think this would have been a Soviet agent that would have done who this? Knows? Who knows? I'm just saying that I, yeah. I could see that that would have contributed to the distrust, like I said, too, mm-hmm. tonight. Because, you know, we were actively doing stuff like that to people. So, And, of course, we knew the Soviets were and we were afraid of them. So yeah. by someone at that high a level going mad, that would have aroused suspicion. So I think that that's an element to it to the distrust as well, as well as the, just the social norms, not being, you know, being right. what they were at the time. Right. It's very interesting. I think it, I think it, I think that it bears a lot of, um, looking at as well, a lot of some of these other cases. I mean, I, I think what we can really agree on though, is that the guy who definitely was murdered. I don't think that he was, that he committed suicide. Seems um, like it. It's just all the physical stuff's too sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you hang yourself out of a window? You know, that just seems really elaborate, really elaborate way to go. Um, I will say, though, that the I think there is pattern in some suicide cases of people thinking that someone's recovering from a depression and then that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, that's not totally unheard of at all. Yeah, in that's fact, true. It's a pattern. That's so. true. There's definitely that gray area there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said before, Frank Olson was also recovering when he was definitely pushed out of a window. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Olson had also been dosed with LSD, which for the longest time, it was thought that that was the reason why was because he uh, there was a danger of him revealing MK Ultra. Now they just think that that was used as a way to get him to not tell everybody about 
the germ warfare that was going on in Korea. Definitely, I recommend uh, the six-part documentary on uh, Netflix called Wormwood about this. And uh, it's very interesting. If you dig a little deeper, yes, throwing people out of windows was a common practice. Ouch. Yeah. Defenestrating people. There's your word for the day. Defenestration. I'm going to defenestrate you. <laughs> All right, you had some you had something you were concerned about. Let's hit that real quick before we get going. Uh I wanted to talk a little bit about there is a um there was a closed hearing that took place uh within either today or I think it was today if not today yesterday where uh some big tech firms were met with the Justice Department and uh, attorney generals from different states, bipartisan, and this this was what kind of Trump put Sessions onto to investigate whether the uh, I guess the social media companies in particular were using algorithms to censor uh, conservative speech and. They were the the conservative attorney generals were met with the Democrats as well, who I, I guess a lot of them went after more of the kind of privacy issues, and they're talking about getting antitrust boards on them. So they're kind of like sicking all the state attorney generals on these big tech companies, which is pretty interesting because you have, you know, you you have the the this bipartisan effort right now when hardly anything is bipartisan. And so it's it's interesting. We'll see what comes of that because it feels like they've uh, kind of had a, f- a free reign for a while, and maybe now the you know the state is looking to kind of rein them in, or or who knows? You know, all these different agendas are going to coalesce into these shared interests. To uh, you know, I guess. So are they looking into them restricting free speech? Is that what they're? looking into them doing well the uh let's see here the justice department said they come this is from usa today the justice department said the conversation focused on consumer protection and data privacy is areas of consensus the white house is considering a draft executive order that would direct federal antitrust and law enforcement agencies to open probes into the practices of the technology companies uh, among the issues discussed were the growth and size of the tech companies and their collection and handling of people's personal information and how state attorney general could work together. According to three officials from 13 states in Washington, D.C., who attended the meeting in person or by phone, because it originally, I guess its original intent was really Sessions turns talk to bias charges. When the Justice Department announced the meeting earlier this month, it said it would discuss whether companies such as Alphabet's Google and Facebook were harming competition and intentionally stifling the free exchange of ideas. Sessions opened... Sessions opened Tuesday's meeting, which also included Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein by raising the issue of alleged ideological bias and sought twice to bring the conversation back to that topic of conservatives being suppressed or censored online, three state attorney generals told USA Today. So I think that was the original intent, but it kind of has morphed into other things, and these 
people found stuff in common. So that that's interesting, and we'll see where that goes. But this was a closed meeting, so we don't have any you know, yeah. transcripts and stuff like that. Which, by the time we actually post this show, Rosenstein will probably not be Deputy Attorney General. Maybe not. <laughs> but maybe he will be. There's, there's yeah. doubts about, you know. He yeah. thought he was getting the axe, but uh, I guess... Oh, everything! Days, everything's so confusing right now. It's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, that's the tech companies like we've talked about. Um, it's it's a difficult issue because we you do have a lot of problems that where it becomes way too biased on one side. And they're trying to restrict that, but now it's going to become biased on the other side. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like a, that's a problem. I have a friend who's an environmentalist who was trying to do a Facebook ad for something. Yeah. And it blocked it and said it had to be reviewed. So I guess almost any political activity now is having to be reviewed by Facebook. Yeah, they might have to just start doing that. So it's uh, it's it's it, they 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 want it to be all about cats and birthdays, which it was. It'd probably be funner if it was, but, <laughs> but because that's become such a forum for our civil discourse, you know, I don't know. We need to explore all the stuff, but yeah, so yeah. that's that. We'll see where that goes. Well, absolutely. Um, next week we will be talking to Jenny Ashford again about her new book, Faceless Villain Two. Which I have already murder, been murder, reading, murder, murder. and uh, there's actually some cases in there from the '60s that have to do with Nashville. Oh, so we're definitely going to talk about that. Cool. And uh, we should be back with Rob next week. So hopefully he's not dead, and uh, we'll be we'll be back with him. I know you love doing double duty, Sir Phil, but we 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 gonna try to keep Rob for as long as we can. Please, Rob. We love you, Rob. We want you back. <laughs> now he just had to do something tonight. He had uh, he had to do some family things, so we definitely understand. But uh, we're trying to kind of make things a little more even here in the conspiratorial world. All right, I think that's it. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about. No, that's good. That's All right, good show tonight. Thank you. Um, thank you for recording it. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> um, Patreon, we have some things up there. Hopefully, we will have more soon. Uh, www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. If you would like to join, which we have gotten some Patreon. Uh, we got a $5 Patreon the other day from yeah. a friend of ours named John, who uh, sent us cool. uh, is now a $5 Patreon. I am $4 away. We are $4 away, rather, to $100 a month. So if someone wants to donate $4. You can make $4, us hundredaires. You can, yeah, you can make us hundredaires. <laughs> we'll, get a, we'll, get some, we'll get a Benjamin every week, yeah, every yeah. month. If you, donate, if, if you want to get in there and listen to all the cool stuff that we have, come on, man, four more dollars. That's all we want. So, and then if you want to leave a donation, well, that's there on the Conspiranormal website and you don't want a recurring thing. 
you can throw us throw us some cash, throw us some money on the Conspiranormal website. Let us website. know what type of extra little content you'd like, you know? I mean, we can yeah. we can have some fun. I mean, I had fun uh, recording you you uh, reading that crazy uh, UFO conspiracy track. <laughs> that was great. And, you know, put that was great. Put on that stuff and maybe make some cool little audio things for you. So Yeah, we, we've got a lot up there. I mean, we got, what, Greg Bishop is there. Uh, we got some stuff from Josh Cutchin. Uh, but uh, we had Recluse and Dr. Future on there, too. And we have so we've got really a lot of people. stuff that we that we, you know, share with everybody just on the main show. But, you know, maybe if... Maybe we might have to start getting some really juicy stuff only for the patrons, you know. Yeah, we might. I think we might. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, we will be back next time to talk about some unsolved murders on Conspiranormal. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.